0: All right, everyone. Welcome to The Report. This is our August 24th episode. We're in the process of developing a new intro. That's why we didn't have music for you tonight, but we're going to have uh, a new revised intro for the show in the future. So that was just our current intro, but we do have some new things we're going to be introducing that I think you're going to like in this show. Uh, This is probably the most interesting episode of The Report uh, thus far, in my personal opinion. We're going to start with our first segment, pretty much for the first half hour, talking about the Republican National Convention, uh, we covered the Democratic Convention last week. The Republican Convention is this week. Um, just like the Democratic Convention, they'll have uh, speakers broadcast on most national media outlets from 9 to 11 p.m. They actually conducted their delegate uh, balloting today and officially re-nominated Trump, uh President Trump as the Republican nominee in 2020. Uh, so we'll have more info on that. Uh, First off, so yeah, we're going to be covering the Republican National Convention first. Then after that, we're going to have a special segment, which I think you're going to find very interesting about the Massachusetts primaries, which are in uh, not this week, but next week. Uh, And some thoroughly interesting races we have there in Massachusetts. We're going to be talking about two hotly contested congressional primaries and the Senate primary, which most people have begun to hear about even on standard national media. Uh, and we're going to have two guests, uh, Adam, Base and, uh, or Adam Bass and Adam Bass and Armin Thomas, both of whom are heavily invested in the Massachusetts primaries and are Massachusetts political experts. And we're going to be talking to them about the races and going through them for the viewers for you guys, so you get to hear about some interesting elections. Uh, and then at the end, we're going to have our third uh, rendition of debate time, which as you know, has been a fairly popular segment. Uh, we've had two debates so far. We talked about populism in the GOP. We talked about social security this week. We're going to be debating whether or not unions, and that's a vague term for any union, private or public sector, whether unions help or hurt the American economy. And we're going to have Eric's going to be arguing, uh, that unions hurt the economy. Uh, On the most basic level, we'll be able to hear their arguments in detail. And Andrew Figueroa, who was on our first episode that we had debate time back two weeks ago, is going to be arguing that unions help the economy. So we've got a lot in store. Please stay tuned. Don't leave. This is uh, by far, in my opinion, going to be the most interesting episode of of the report uh, up to this point. So the first thing we're covering is the Republican National Convention in Charlotte, and unlike the Democratic National Convention, where you had uh, virtual speakers and virtual balloting, uh, the Republican National Convention had in-person balloting today. Uh, attendees were required to get temperature checks. They were required to wear masks and they were required to uh, maintain some form of distance since we still are in the midst of the pandemic. But uh, there was definitely more of an in-person presence uh, on the first day of the Republican Convention today than there was uh, for the Democratic counterpart last week. Uh, and. Uh, as you know, if you've been following the news lately, President Trump accepted his renomination. Uh, Ronald Romney McDaniel, the chair of the GOP, effectively opened the balloting for the convention, and um, the convention delegates decided to renominate the president, which matches with the primary results where President Trump easily dispatched. Uh, Two challengers, Joe Walsh and Bill Weld in that primary there. So he won, and we can expect Mike Pence to be renominated as vice president by acclamation. Uh, There there has been previously some speculation that Mike Pence would be replaced uh, on the VP ticket. Uh, Some people said Trump would pick Nikki Haley to boost his numbers among women and suburban voters, but that's highly unlikely at this point. Trump has repeatedly praised Mike Pence and his work on the task force, Pointed out how hard a worker he is, so I just find it very unlikely that he or the convention are going to push to get rid of Vice President Pence. After all the uh, praise that that uh, President Trump has delivered for his vice president, so we can expect by the end of this convention for the Republican ticket uh, to be much the same. So we're going to be going over the convention. Uh, we're going to be talking about President Trump and essentially his take at the convention. We have a little clip actually of his acceptance speech. Uh, It's a brief clip. And then after that, we're going to be talking about some of the speakers. Um, So, yeah, we're going to be going through that. And this continues our coverage of the national conventions. Again, we covered, if you watched our last week's stream, we covered the Democratic Convention uh, last week. But uh, so far, before we get into the discussion with Eric, I'm going to play you guys a brief clip of President Trump. This is from his acceptance speech today. uh, And he was talking to his supporters uh, about... Uh, supposedly, the Democrats attempting to rig the election. And he was talking about how uh, President Obama supposedly spied on his campaign. He was pointing out his supporters uh, that the Republicans should be careful this time to avoid the problem. He also criticized the Democrats. Uh, and you've seen this in some states with Democratic governors how they send um, mail in ballots uh, to to all voters, even if they didn't request a ballot. And this issue is quite a partisan issue. Democrats or the more liberal minded typically believe that it's voter suppression if you don't send ballots to everyone because it doesn't give them an opportunity and some people don't know how to request a ballot. Uh, But conservatives on the flip side argue that it it, it is not the way that voting is supposed to work. So it's become quite a contentious issue uh, and ties into the postal service. So as you're gonna see in this clip, uh, Trump, I, if I believe correctly from what I when I uh, loaded up the clip, I believe Trump also addresses the Postal Service and Democrats have been harshly attacking him on the Postal Service. If we look at that over the last few weeks, again, another partisan issue. Democrats are trying to argue that he's attempting to rig the election. And I say those words not always quite literally, but just uh, he's attempting to give himself an advantage in the election is what they're arguing. Um And the opposing party, essentially the Republican Party, has argued that Democrats are going to blame uh, a potential Trump victory on them doing. Sorry about that. Uh, I did not mean to play that early, but we're getting to that point. So here's a clip from the Associated Press uh, of Trump's acceptance speech today. Uh, It's a few seconds long. So before we start our discussion, I'll play this for you guys.
1: We caught them doing some really bad things. In 2016, let's see what happens. We caught them doing some really bad things. We have to be very careful because they're trying it again with this whole 80 million mail-in ballots that they're working on, uh, sending them out to people that didn't ask for them. They didn't ask. They just get them. And it's not...
0: So you can see there the president talking about two marquee issues for uh, his base, something he's definitely been bringing up over the last few weeks. And that is, uh, he's actually a good example of this is the state of New Jersey. My governor, Phil Murphy, uh, in the state of New Jersey, essentially uh, made sure that the division of elections is going to give all 6 million registered voters uh, an absentee or mail-in ballot, whatever you want to call it, even if they didn't request it. And the Trump Uh, White House is actually suing or the Trump campaign is suing the state of New Jersey. So that's currently a lawsuit that's being litigated there. Uh, And that's an issue around the country. And it's again, it's attracted the ire of Democrats who are arguing that Trump is trying to rig the election. But at the same time, Trump does use it to help fuel up his base there. Uh, And I think it's worth noting. So definitely the post office uh, and the uh, mail-in ballots that come along with it. That's certainly something that we want to look at uh, when we're looking at the Trump campaign so eric i'm going to bring you in here to the discussion now what do you think about that clip of the president today in his acceptance speech uh i know that was part that the media focused on uh another half that we didn't cover he basically talked about how he had fulfilled his agenda uh and prior to the coronavirus pandemic how we had had a strong economy and that was true Uh, prior to the pandemic we pretty much did have a strong economy but he basically ran through the mill uh, accepting the nomination, saying some things like that that raised the base's uh, enthusiasm for him, and also talking about his accomplishments as a, as a president. So what do you think about, about the post office and uh, voting and how it will impact this this year's election?
1: Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of – I think there's a genuine issue at the heart of this post office controversy. I think there's there's obviously some – a lot of suspicion going around on all sides. You're seeing even moderate Democrats like Jim Cooper, certainly not known for being in – Um, You know, a a loudmouth liberal um, take a very aggressive stance on this issue. So I think for some, this has become a mobilizing issue. I think Trump is trying to prevent this from going into the Republican Party as well, trying to reassure uh, his base who are predominantly rural and would be impacted by such a problem that there's not really an issue going on. I do think this is being overblown to a degree, but I, I think there is reason to be concerned, specifically given the combination of him previously going after mail and ballots. It's certainly not a good look, and I can understand why someone might, um, even if it's not actually the case, might have an issue with, you know, might put two and two together and, and see there's a potential conflict here. And
0: uh, it is important to note again, since we are an unbiased media network, there's no evidence that Trump is trying to rig the election, and Correct. there's no ev- and there's no evidence that the Democrats are spying on the Trump campaign. Uh, those are basically platitudes that both parties use again to kind of fuel up their base. Uh, but when you're looking at it, again, we've seen that. But what do you think in terms of the distribution of ballots and how some states are going to give ballots to everyone and other states are going to operate on the more standard system where uh, voter requests a ballot? How do you think that's going to play out in terms of having an impact on the
1: election this uh, It could impact the popular vote overall. Um, obviously, there's been the concern that uh, Donald Trump could lose the popular vote again. But when the electoral college vote, this is, of course, a possibility. It's built into the system. Um, And this becomes much more likely if you have a lot of states where if you have liberal states giving everyone the ballot and thus more voters turn out in those states. And then if you have people requesting them in in red states, the turnout might be lower, which could result in lower numbers. That's just one possibility there. Um, There's another possibility, which is that in states that aren't letting everyone get ballots, you could see, for example, large urban blue counties giving people ballots in much larger degrees, while the more rural red counties uh, avoid doing this. This is actually backfire on Republicans and that that there'd be much more of an opportunity for people to mail vote on the Democratic side than the Republican side, at least in terms of friendly areas. Um, Ultimately, I I don't know how this will go until November because we really don't know who plans to vote in person and who plans to mail-in vote. There's obviously polls, but the most accurate predictor of how things go is in November. Uh, We're seeing early vote in a lot of states where uh, Democrats have a decided advantage in mail-in votes where they normally wouldn't but at the moment uh, we don't know if that's ultimately reflected if, you know, those, those voters uh, that has an impact in November where a lot of those Democrats would have voted in person and now vote in mail. We really don't know. Um, mm. So I think it's going to be, it's going to, a lot of this is going to be really more apparent as the election goes on. And we get more of those numbers of what indications of who is returning ballots and specifically in those states sending them to everyone because there are a good number yeah. of them.
0: Yeah. I think it's definitely an issue worth noting. And as I said uh there are two different sides on this issue, and it shouldn't be a partisan issue, but leave it to political parties to make it a partisan issue essentially. Uh, but but it is concerning, and you've had in recent weeks the post office has become a major issue for the Democrats. Uh, in Congress, Nancy Pelosi and the House Democrats uh, pushed a bill to essentially beef up funding to the post office. Uh, there have also been congressional inquiries uh, where the postmaster general uh, DeJoy was actually subpoenaed to come speak before the House of Representatives. So clearly the, the House Democrats and, and granted, there were a few moderate Republicans, notably Jeff Andrew and Chris Smith, who come from New Jersey, mm-hmm. who did vote for that post office boost bill. Uh, but but overall, most Republicans, even some in in uh, more rural districts that rely on the post office, voted against it. And. Um, Their premise for voting against it was that Pelosi was trying to essentially play politics and turn it into a partisan issue to accuse Trump of rigging the election. Uh, And the Democrats are arguing that they're just trying to uncover the problems in uh, the post office under the Trump era, or dysfunction, essentially. So what are your thoughts on the congressional uh, division, really? Because... Uh, Mitch McConnell in in the Senate is certainly on the side of uh, President Trump and the Republican Party, even though Nancy Pelosi is the archenemy of the president in the House. So how fruitful do you really think that these uh, investigations of the post office, that these bills supporting the post office, how fruitful do you think these are actually going to be when we look at their impact? And is this just playing politics or is this just uh, or is this a legitimate investigation by the uh, House Democrats? What's your opinion on that?
1: Mm hmm. Well, obviously, in a divided Congress, you need both houses and the president to sign legislation. And clearly, this bill has no chance of being signed by the either signed by the president or passed by the Senate. Um, what it could be is it, it could become a salient issue later on if there are issues. Uh, if you recall back to 2000, I believe it was 2010, you had the IRS scandal under uh, President Obama. It actually it didn't result in any short-term problems. Obviously, you had some uh, you had some people who were upset. You had hearings. You had censures. You had admonishments. Impeachment proceedings, even. Um, but ultimately, nothing actually came of it in, in the first term. But as it came on, it became a hammering point where people are able to hammer onto the Democratic Party people who weren't even involved in this as as a, as a salient issue for conservatives. Uh, if there are issues with mail-in voting in November, it's easily possible whether or not this is because of these actions or not that they could, you know, Democrats could look at this and say, you know we called this right up front. We wanted to have the post office work and it doesn't work. And they could have, that can become a similar, a long-term saliency Mm -hmm.
0: issue. And and then the president brought that up in his acceptance speech in a way. Uh, It's not included in the clip, but if you watch the full thing, which you can find on YouTube under the Associated Press, he basically said uh, that if he wins the election, the Democrats will use uh, the post office or blaming him for rigging the election uh, with the post office. They'll use that as kind of an excuse. And again, these are not my words or Elections Daily's Mm -hmm. words. I'm just telling you what the president said. And Mm -hmm. again, uh, there are Democrats who would say that's ludicrous. Uh, and that they're just trying to fight for the integrity of the post office. Uh, but on the flip side, as you mentioned about um, similar post office dysfunction during the Obama administration years. It was the IRS did, in, that,
1: in that case. But, no, but, but, and but I'm bringing yeah.
0: this up as well, that, that, they're, that post office uh, dysfunction is not always exclusive to the Trump administration. Now, Correct. this wasn't related to an election, so it's different. But uh, you had a Republican like Louis Gohmert bringing up how during the Obama administration there was male dysfunction. Uh, relating to the speedy delivery of mail. Now I'm just bringing that up. It has nothing to do with an election though, because it didn't occur during an election year. So this is different. Uh, mm-hmm. But your point about the IRS was also good when looking at that. But another thing is the post office is not just important for elections. It's important for everything from mail to food delivery to medications.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, as
0: one of the people in our comments mentioned, it's particularly important for uh, all neighborhoods, whether they're wealthy or low income. And uh, there are a lot of people who rely on the post office, especially during the pandemic, to get medications and uh, other things. And this has been a talking point that the Democrats have used. Uh, I know Republicans have said that the talking point is, again, kind of playing politics, but it is a legitimate concern. Um, so, quite frankly, I mean, when we're looking at this issue, uh, I think it's worth noting. I mean, what else do you have to say about the post office as an institution? I mean, it is it's it is a fundamentally American institution.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, it's a constitutionally enabled – it's mentioned directly in the Constitution, one of the few really government agencies you can look at and say the founders were absolutely in favor of. At the same time, it's also had problems for years, financial solvency. It's had problems with – they've gone back just longer than Trump. Uh, Obviously, uh, whether or not you're Republican or Democrat, whether or not you've looked at the information or not, uh, it's undeniable that the post office has had issues for a long time. Um, And so this is – the fact that these have kind of come to a head in a crisis – kind of gives you in my opinion uh, leads leads Prince to the idea you need to you need to get uh, answers to these problems before it becomes a crisis uh, if this if these issues have been tampered out five ten years ago we wouldn't be talking about this right now um, at least not to the degree they were because obviously you've had mail removal you've had slow mail um, you've had the post office losing money um, these aren't new uh, the, the yeah. scale of what's going on may be new but the core problems have been there for a while. Um, This isn't just entirely some new development. It isn't
0: just a Republican issue as well. I mean, the post office Mm -hmm. was brought up quite frequently during the Democratic National Convention. And uh, as I said earlier, they were arguing in that convention, uh, the typical argument, they were arguing for continued House investigation of Trump's relation with the post office, the Trump appointments uh, to the postmaster generalship and the board of the post office. So it's definitely a bipartisan issue with bipartisan concerns, but it's worth addressing because the post office is. Uh, is is as we've said, and as people are saying in the comments, it's mm-hmm. it is fundamentally an American institution. Uh, And around the world, there are public post systems like that. And we're not Mm going to get into the debate of having a private mail system and whether or not that'd be negligible or beneficial, because that's for a different time. Maybe we'll do that for debate time someday. But we have to move on. Uh, We have 10 more minutes left in this segment. And like we did for the Democratic National Convention last week, we're going to go over the themes for the night. Typically, conventions set a theme for the night, and we're going to go over speakers uh, Mm -hmm. because speakers are also very important. Yeah. So the first night of the convention, we had three morning speakers. Essentially, you had Donald Trump, who accepted his nomination for president for a second term, uh, Mike Pence, who gave a thank you speech following his voice vote renomination as vice president, and Scott Walker, the former Wisconsin governor, introduced the vice president uh, at the convention. But tonight, just like the Democratic convention from eight thirty to eleven, uh, there are going to be selected speakers of varying degrees—from politicians to conservative figures—to uh, I don't even really know how to describe people like uh, Sandman, for example, who's, who's kind of just a conservative teenager who, as you know, is involved in that confrontation with a Native American, uh, but he's being given a speaking spot as well. So it's quite a diverse list of speakers, uh, certainly fewer outright politicians than we saw at the Democratic National Convention, but uh, both conventions have had their fair share of popular culture mm-hmm. figures, people who would be popular with the party base. Uh, so tonight's theme is called The Land of Heroes. Uh, and the speakers for tonight are Matt Gaetz, who's a U.S. representative from the Florida Panhandle. He's a noted conservative in Congress. Uh, Kimberly Guilfoyle, formerly a Fox News contributor who was on the show The Five before she moved, um, before she moved on to the Trump campaign and uh, formed a relationship with Trump's son, uh, Nikki Haley, who's the former governor of South Carolina and Trump's former UN ambassador. Uh, Vernon Jones, who actually notably was a Democratic state representative from the Atlanta area who endorsed Trump as a uh, sitting Democrat. One of the very few, because you saw some Republicans like John Kasich and Christine Todd Whitman speak at the DNC for Joe Biden. Uh, and Certainly they were more prevalent in their time than uh, Vernon Jones, given that they were governors. Uh, but again, I mean, that is one of the few Democrats you're going to see speaking at the RNC. Uh, Jim Jordan, U.S. representative from Ohio. Uh, Charlie Kirk, who you all should know from Turning Point USA, the conservative organization. Uh, And then you have Ronna Romney McDaniel, who's the chair of the RNC. You have some some candidates, Uh, Kimberly Classic, who's running in Maryland's 7th district, which is a heavily Democratic seat based in Baltimore, predominantly African-American. And Sean Parnell, who's running in the 17th district against uh, Blue Dog Democrat Connor Lamb. Uh, interestingly enough, both Mark and Patricia McCloskey, who were involved in that famous, uh, I guess you could say now infamous picture of them holding an assault rifle outside their home uh, to defend themselves from Black Lives Matter protesters. Uh, and that's kind of become an Internet meme, but they've also been given a uh, speaking spot. So they're two private citizens, essentially, uh, who conservatives rallied uh, behind following that incident, who are being given a speaking spot. Um, Andrew Pollock who is a father of a a Parkland school shooting victim is going to be speaking. And then you wrap it up with president Trump's son, uh, Senator Tim Scott from South Carolina, who's arguably the uh, most prominent African-American Republican in the party. And, uh, Steve Scalise, who's the house minority Whip from Louisiana. So that's the first night tonight. Mm -hmm. Uh, Eric, what do you think about that list of speakers? What does it bring to you in terms of experience, in terms of uh, how it fuels the Republican base? And, and how successful do you think this speaking event's going to be when we look at it compared to mm-hmm. a Democratic
1: convention? Yeah, so it's definitely an odd mix of people. I wouldn't say it's a completely ideologically inconsistent one. Uh, but I do think what's notable here is the complete and total absence of anyone you would consider to be part of the national conservative or populist Wing of the Republican Party, obviously there's people like Matt Gates and Jim Jordan, uh, but those really and Charlie Kirk, but those really qualify more as like Freedom Caucus types, not people who are wanting to yeah. move the party towards a more protectionist uh, immigration restrictionist side. More people just to are just generally hardcore conservative on a lot of a lot of issues in general. Um, whereas you have a lot of us Republicans well represented: Tim Scott, Nikki Haley. Um, those are two really really good voices for Republicans that people are. Excited about on the on the Republican side, you obviously have a lot of people associated with the Trumps. I think Kim Classic could actually be a really good choice. Um, I know I was impressed mostly with her campaign ad. Obviously, that's an unwinnable race, but if you want to start inroads into communities, you need to build up voices in those communities that are able to, you know, kind of make connections. Um, you know, overall, and I don't think it's a bad move to kind of highlight people running in those sorts of districts because long term. If you know, you may not win that district. And again, yeah,
0: I mean, I think yeah. that's definitely something people can agree with, regardless of whether or not they agree with the policies of this uh, mm-hmm. specific candidate. I mean, the Democrats did a similar thing with their uh, Rising Stars series, where they had uh, yeah. various people from what we would consider relatively low-level positions, but who they believed had potential in the future in terms of career. Mm-hmm. Uh, and while it's going to be at least with our current political environment impossible, essentially, to win as a Republican in a district uh, like that in the House surrounding Baltimore, I, I, again, it is uh, you're, you yeah. are correct that it, it fulfills the message that President Trump is trying to to uh, push to the American people that the Republicans in his mold can make inroads in some of these areas.
1: Sure. And she's actually often, running a yeah. And she's actually running a fairly moderate campaign. Obviously there's some Trumpiness Yeah, rhetoric, I mean, You'd, have, she, to, you'd yeah. have
0: to if you're uh, in a mm-hmm. district like that But,
1: but ultimately yeah. yeah, ultimately to succeed in those areas you're you're only going to get 20, 25%. But if you can turn it into 35% next, you know, next decade, 40% 50% in a few decades. That's not a bad move. I, I, I think people like that are actually good voices to have at conventions to prove you have a, you know, to be like, yeah, we're paying attention to urban issues. We're paying attention to these communities in an earnest way. Um, I think what will be kind of interesting is to see who positions themselves as, as pretend, uh, potential candidates. Out of this list, uh, Steve Scalise is definitely a favorite to become a house speaker at some point or a mm-hmm. majority leader. Um, obviously Matt Gates would love to run for some sort of statewide office in Florida. Uh, Jim Jordan sees himself as having a, a major political future. Nikki Haley and Tim Scott have been both touted as, as potential presidential candidates. Uh, even yeah. Donald Trump Jr. And, as well.
0: And, uh, we didn't, we didn't cover the full list. So I guess real quick before we mm-hmm. wrap up, we have about five minutes left. I'll just go through, tell you guys the themes for the other three nights of the convention. And then I'll also bring up. Uh, Again, like you said, some more rising star speakers, prominent speakers, Mm -hmm. people who are potential candidates in 2024. So we'll go through some of those. So um, uh, as you know, this is the Land of Heroes night. Tomorrow's the Land of Promise. Uh, You have some people uh, like Pam Bondi, who's the former attorney general of Florida, and she was notable Mm -hmm. for defending President Trump during the impeachment hearings. Uh, Jeanette Nunez, who's lieutenant governor of Florida, potentially Mm -hmm. a Florida statewide candidate someday. Uh, yeah, My good with
1: Cuban Americans. Yeah,
0: Mike Pompeo, the uh, Secretary of State. You have Kim Reynolds, the Governor of Iowa. Uh, Rand Paul, who you know from his 2016 bid and his uh, staunchly libertarian views within the Republican Party. And then you have the rest of the Trump family on tomorrow night. So Donald Trump Jr. speaking again. Then Eric Trump, Ivanka, Melania, Melania and uh, Tiffany Trump. Uh, Wednesday's mm-hmm. called the Land of Opportunity. Second to last day. Uh, Marsha Blackburn, arguably a rising star, won her Senate seat in 2018 mm-hmm. over former Governor Phil Bredesen. Um, uh, I think Eric wants to say something about Tiffany Trump real quick. Oh, I was going to he... mention
1: that in a second just when you finished running it through, but I do find it yeah, interesting. You can, you she only really pops, it yeah, yeah. I do find it interesting. She only really pops up for conventions. Uh, I think out of the Trump family, she actually may be the most likable and, and personable one. I'm surprised they haven't used her more as a surrogate because she's not really – uh, she's not really associated with the, with the the um like the the family politics so much. I think she's more of an interesting like you know what Eric Trump and what Donald Trump Jr. and what to a degree Ivanka Trump are going to be talking about. She's someone who's a little bit younger, yeah, um, a little bit a little bit more, yeah. Um, like I, I don't know. I think I, I will be interested to see what she has to say mainly because she really only shows up during conventions. She spoke at the last convention, and by all accounts, it seemed to go over pretty well. Uh, She's mostly kept her distance from politics, but it always is interesting Mm -hmm. to see a complete show of unity from the Trump family um, here. Yeah. So,
0: yeah, I think uh, that's, that's a very good point. And uh, I'm going to finish up reading some uh, rising star stuff Uh, real quick. I just want to note that Kellyanne Conway is supposed to uh, speak uh, on the third night of the convention, but that's now in doubt because as you know, she announced on Twitter, her withdrawal from the white house staff to spend more time with her family and her husband, George Conway, Uh, who is known for possessing political views opposite of hers, who works for the Lincoln Project, which is running millions (laughs) of dollars in ads against President Trump, also announced he's stepping down to spend more time with the family. So uh, apparently they're spending more time together trying to spend more time with family. So I don't know for sure if she's going to keep speaking. So that's just something I wanted to note. Uh, with the viewers before we continue onward. Uh, You've got Madison Cawthorn, who's also speaking on the third night, considered a Mm -hmm. rising star. There have been some allegations against him, which we've covered in previous videos, but for the sake of time, I'm going to keep moving. Uh, Dan Crenshaw was elected in 2018. Some know him as the uh, ex-military veteran with the eye patch and the conservative views, essentially. A lot of Americans have seen him, Mm -hmm. especially Fox News viewers. Uh, He's their potential rising star. Joni Ernst, senator from Iowa, uh, Christy Nome, the governor of South Dakota. Mike Pence's wife, Karen Pence, is speaking. Um, and um, in addition to Pence and his wife, another prominent speaker is Elise Stefanik, who's been taking the initiative of electing more Republican women in the Republican caucus. And she's a U.S. representative from upstate New York, so the district that takes in Watertown and the St. Lawrence River area and the Adirondacks. Um, and on the last night, it's called The Land of Greatness. Uh, You've got people like Tom Cotton, someone who definitely could run for president someday. Uh, Kevin McCarthy, who is technically, unless he's voted uh, out in the primary for speaker, if Republicans take back the House, he's the most likely person to become speaker because he's minority leader. Uh, Mitch McConnell, the Senate majority leader, who you all know. Uh, Donald Trump and from New Jersey, Jeff Van Drew, who was actually elected as a very conservative Democrat back in 2018 and switched to the Republicans. Now he's one of the more liberal Republicans, but he is speaking there uh, as well on that final night. And President Trump, who is speaking apparently on all four nights, is going to come out and close out uh, that land of Mm -hmm. greatness night. And well, uh, the Republican A platform is essentially going to be the same as it was last time, because as far as they know, they haven't voted on a new platform. Mm -hmm. Uh, We can expect President Trump to talk about what he's accomplished over the last four years and what his plans are to address the current crises pertaining to the economy and the coronavirus and how he's going to do that going forward. We can uh, look to expect what he would do if he's reelected. And, you know, that's Mm -hmm. what conventions are. Uh, They're basically partisan. Uh, Echo chambers so people can rally up the base. And while some of these are virtual, may not have the same effectiveness as a normal convention when it comes to polling, uh, but Trump potentially has the potential to tighten the race slightly, uh, depending on how successful this is. So I'm curious to see how it's pulled off. I know today's Mm -hmm. speech was supposed to be partisan, but if he can have a real unifying, positive message uh, on Thursday, that may actually help him. So, closing notes we have about one minute left just to talk about this 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. Any final notes here before you head off?
1: Yeah, so two final notes is that one, uh, Biden had an increase of around five percentage points in his favorability, not in his polling uh, from the DNC. That's obviously, I think, a best case scenario for Trump about a five point shift, which would be probably what he would want to see if that's at all possible. The second is what's also important is who's not here. Uh, Lots of presidential candidates or potential ones who have been mentioned Uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, uh, his lieutenant governor is speaking there, but not himself personally. Uh, Senator Josh Hawley, who, despite being somewhat of a backbencher, is often in media and likes to position himself as a candidate, is not there. And finally, one of the candidates I think is kind of more of a joke candidate mentioned, but Tucker Carlson. He's not there either, Um, and he's someone who could more easily fit into a sort of speaking role. So it's really interesting looking at this. These are mostly, aside from the Trump people, these are mostly normal Republicans or the Elise Stefanik, Stan Crenshaws, um, just pretty normal people. So it'll be interesting to see how it goes.
0: Yeah, I think it's very interesting. And uh, just like we did for the Democratic Convention, we're going to be covering the Republican Convention as well. So if you're a Republican or you're interested in politics and may not agree with it, you can watch it on uh, most major media networks. As far as I know, uh, Fox News will most likely definitely be covering it at, uh, I think, 8.30 p.m. to 11. So if you're interested in that, you can watch that. Uh, In the meantime, we're going to be taking a quick one-minute break uh, in between our next segment. So thank you, Eric, for coming on for our first segment. Mm And we're gonna be taking a quick break. We'll be right back with our special about the Massachusetts primaries where we have two college Massachusetts experts coming on to discuss the races with us. And welcome back to the report. We're going to be discussing uh, the Massachusetts primaries. This is our special segment. And after that, we're going to have debate time. Uh, So we're gonna be welcoming two, as I said, college Massachusetts political experts who have been covering these races thoroughly. Uh, One of them is Adam Adam Bass, who is in charge of Wheaton College Radio. He's their chief political correspondent there. Uh, He also hosts a program called uh, the Cod Cabin that talks about Massachusetts politics. And he's been covering specifically the Senate race in the Massachusetts 4 primary, but I'm sure he'll have some stuff to say about the Massachusetts 1 primary as well. Uh, and our second guest tonight is Armin Thomas, who's a, a personal good friend of mine. He uh, is at Yale and he works for OSC Elections. He's the he's in charge there. I highly recommend you check it out. You can uh, ask Armin on Twitter and you can look up OSC Elections on Twitter. And I'm sure Armin will have more information at the end of the segment. But they did a very, very intuitive model for the Massachusetts Senate primary. They also have a model for the U.S. House elections this year. So we're going to welcome them both on uh welcome adam and welcome armin how are you guys doing great to be here uh harrison
3: yeah thank you thanks for having me on i'm happy to be here
0: great we're happy to have you guys on and i'm really looking forward to this i know we've had a record viewership on the report now i know a lot of people have been looking forward to this because the massachusetts uh, primaries this cycle are quite interesting so we're going to be talking about three of them tonight uh one senate primary and uh There wouldn't be any more Senate primaries. And then we have uh, two congressional primaries as well uh, in the first and fourth districts. So uh, first off in the Massachusetts primary, it is not tomorrow. It is next week, uh, September 1st. And there's been a lot of speculation and a lot of hype, if we want to use that word surrounding it on Twitter. Oh, yes. Uh, So we have our two special guests here. And uh, we're not going to talk about any specific races yet but I'm going to throw it to both of you to give 30 seconds to one minute of speech talking about, uh, just explaining to the viewers, uh, some big things you expect in this Massachusetts primary. And again, we're going to go into the races in detail. So if you have any important points, uh, save that for them. So really just use this to introduce yourself to the viewers, uh, say any big, big picture things about the Massachusetts primary. So we're going to go to arm first.
3: Yeah. So, uh, Hey guys, I've been, uh, I, I haven't been, you know, covering the Massachusetts primaries from as much of a journalistic perspective as Adam has over here, but I've been focused more on the data side. And uh, what the data points to, at least in the Senate race, is it's going to be a very close race. It's going to come down to the wire. You know, both candidates have their very strong respective bases in various different parts of the state. Um, And, you know, they do very well with different demographics of voters. You know, Kennedy does better with, you know, extremely wealthy voters as well as, you know, extremely poor voters and minorities, and then Ed Markey takes everybody else, which is basically middle class and upper middle class voters. Um, and the distributions of that and uh, you know in terms of the relative populations and where they're located are gonna be very interesting to see. And there are a bunch of other factors that go into it, but that's the that's my general take on the race right now.
0: All
4: right, and uh, Adam, if you want to introduce yourself and give a quick rundown. Yes. Hi, everybody. I'm Adam Bass, journalist and reporter from WCCS Week in College Radio. And I've been taking a a journalistic look, as Armin would say, at the race. And, you know, this is going to be the tightest Senate race in our lifetimes. We are probably never going to get a chance to see that happen. As well as the Massachusetts Fourth, you know, these are primaries that usually have a lot of candidates in them uh, for, for House seats that remain for a very long time. So if you're elected into this House seat, you're probably going to stay there for quite some time. So I expect, as Armin said, very tight races. You're going to see probably the candidate in Massachusetts four win by either about or less than twenty percent. And in Massachusetts, in the Massachusetts Senate, I think we're going to see either Kennedy or Markey pull out a plus one or plus two win. You know, these are becoming very hotly contested races too. A lot of uh, internal spatting on Twitter and in the and in the public sphere. So this is something we got to keep an eye on as this race gets closer and closer to September 1st.
0: Yeah. Thank you guys for that introduction. I think you provided some good points and I'm glad that you could introduce yourselves to the viewers. Again, both of these people, I know, well, they're both uh, very knowledgeable on these races and uh, they're the people you want to go to for the latest reports, the latest analyses of these races. So obviously we're going to start off with what many consider the marquee race in Massachusetts, this cycle, and that's the marquee Senate right?
4: marquee race,
0: the, uh, <laughs> Uh, I made a pun without <laughs> intention
4: to it. So, I nice. it. All right.
0: So uh, the uh, Massachusetts Senate primary between Ed Markey, uh, who's represented the seat since he uh, switched over from the House to the Senate uh, in a 2013 special election. Um, and uh, Markey before that, he wasn't new to Congress then. He'd been in the House since 1976. Uh, so an interesting point, if you combine Markey's service in the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate, he's been in there for 42 years, which is longer than his opponent, Joe Kennedy, has been alive. Uh, so he's being challenged by the much younger congressman from the 4th District, Joe Kennedy the third. Uh, his father was also in congress and as you know he comes from a very prominent political family that has uh dominated mostly massachusetts but also extended to rhode island and through marriage now has extended to new jersey as well uh, but kennedy's 39 years old so there's an age difference there uh, the candidates are both going to try and say they're different animals when it comes to policy but uh from what i've observed they are both Uh, you would say liberal Democrats. So they are both similar when it comes to policy and uh, arguably they would both fit Massachusetts well. But again, this is a very close race. Um, And uh, I guess we can just have both of you guys give a quick rundown. We have some debate clips uh, to show to our viewers so the viewers can get an idea as well. We pretty much have the closing statements for both candidates. So I'll show those in a bit. Uh, But if you guys want to maybe give again another little minute rundown of this race in specific, some things you're watching, uh, who you think has the edge right now going into the final week of the campaign? Uh, so I'm going to give it to uh, Armin again to start off here.
3: Yeah, so I think this Senate primary has to be prefaced by the fact that Massachusetts, which has historically been a very you know pro-incumbent state, you know where people waited their turn in terms of taking. Uh, uh, legislative offices that uh, incumbents uh, would hold, they would wait for the incumbents to retire and then, like you know, work their way up the ladder bit by bit. But as we've seen in the seventh district uh, in the twenty eighteen cycle, uh, Ayanna Pressley, who was a city councilor in Boston at the time, she uh, I guess unseated the incumbent congressman Mike Capuano in the Democratic primary, and so Joe Kennedy is trying to, you know, catapult himself to a more national stage on a similar type of trajectory. Um, and, uh, it remains to be seen whether, uh, whether it'll work because, you know, Markey has, was initially caught sleeping at the wheel when Kennedy announced. Um, but the polls have tightened a lot and it's going to, it's going to come down to the wire no matter what.
0: Yeah, uh, that's a good point. And now we're going to go to Adam. Can you give a brief little statement
4: as well on that before we move on to our debate clips? Sure, this is a debate. This is a, a race about legacy versus legislation. Kennedy is really starting to lean into his legacy. We saw him really talk about his family after Markey attacked uh, his father and his brother for for supposedly putting money into uh, super PAC ads that go against uh, Senator Markey. And Kennedy has started to lean into that. And I think older voters and around Gen X, uh, late Boomer voters, would be more attached to the Kennedy name as they did grow up during the time. Markey is reaching out to a lot of younger voters who have a lot of energy behind him. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, it's going to be a question of whether the legislation wins or the legacy wins in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm.
0: And it is very, very interesting when you look at Ed Markey's long, long career and how he's evolved as a Democrat, arguably become more liberal. Uh, But when you're looking at it that way, Markey, it's quite interesting to see that Markey, who's in his 70s and has been in Congress for, again, longer than Kennedy's been around, has managed to attract much more youth support, much more support on college campuses than a younger candidate like Kennedy has attracted. And again, they both are very similar when it comes to political views. And before this primary, we're arguably very good friends. I mean, Markey was in a way sort of a mentor uh, to Joe Kennedy at right, yeah. that way. But but again, it's it's very, very interesting looking at how young support's broken out. I mean, Markey was known for working with AOC, who recently endorsed him on the Green New Deal. So that could have helped with younger progressive college voters. Uh, but yeah, it is very, very interesting when we're looking at younger voters' propensity, uh, at least in recent times, to back Ed Markey, who, who hit first glance, if you were just looking at age and saying younger candidate younger candidates, maybe attract more younger support. Not really the case in this, in this case here, in this race. Well, uh, real quick, we have some uh, debate footage as we move along here. We're going to play the closing statements of Senator Ed Markey and his challenger in the Democratic primary, uh, Representative Joe Kennedy of the 4th District. So we're going to start with uh, Ed Markey.
1: On the arc of justice, to ensure that everyone has access to it in our country, I pledge to the voters of Massachusetts, and I ask for their vote that I be given the honor of continue to fight for justice for every person in our state and the entire United States of America.
2: Joe,
0: And uh, here's Joe Kennedy's concluding statement.
2: We have a choice to make because so many families are hurting and the last several months have been brutal. We have a chance to actually go big and to make sure that out of this wreckage comes a reckoning or we can choose to do more of the same. I hope to have that chance to serve you in the Senate to make sure that we continue to build uh, on this change. Thank you. Mr.
0: So you see both the concluding statements there. So again, we're expecting a very hotly contested Senate race, and I know Armin uh, has a model of this race, which we can share on Twitter from the Elections Daily account later tonight. Uh, it is expected to be a tight race. So we, for the sake of time, we have about seven minutes, so we have to save time for some of the congressional primaries. So. Uh, we're going to wrap up with this segment. So real quick, what do you guys think this last week of the campaign is going to bring? And, uh, how do you expect the last week to go? And last of all, who do you expect to win if you had to bet and by how much? So we're going to start with Armin and we'll conclude with that. So Armin, can you please uh, give us your thoughts real quick?
3: Yeah. So ultimately, uh, there are so many different variables in this, but as the cliche says, it's all going to come to turnout, you know, Kennedy's going to have to get his base out in those heavily non-college white cities down in the South Coast, Fall River, Dartmouth, uh, uh, New Bedford, Taunton, areas like that. And Markey's going to have to turn out his areas in his old district when he represented Massachusetts in the House, like Lexington, Arlington, Cambridge, uh, Malden especially. Um, But if the election was held today, I would say Kennedy has a slight edge because uh, Markey's momentum has stagnated somewhat. and the the family, uh, the family dynamic with the discourse surrounding the Kennedy name has definitely been beneficial to Kennedy. So I'd say at this point, I'd say Kennedy wins by about a point or two as well. The model doesn't currently reflect that because there isn't a way of quantifying momentum. But as, as soon as more quantifiable factors come in, that will be updated.
0: Okay. And Adam,
4: your quick thoughts on this before we move on to the House primaries? So I do agree with Armin. I do think Kennedy would win about by one or two, but the thing that could really excite the race right now is one more poll. That's all it needs to really just get one of the bases fired up. Um, I could see Kennedy really getting excited, especially in those Western areas of Massachusetts. He's looking at Worcester, uh, the Berkshires, places that he's trying to bleed support from Markey to really come home to him. Um, He's using a strategy that really works. It's uh, big four cities, Lowell, Worcester, Springfield and Boston and surrounding suburbs to really drive out turnout there. So if, if it just takes one more poll for him or Markey, it could be decided by that.
0: Yeah, I think that's good. I mean, again, this is a toss up race. It's very close. In the last poll we saw I had the leader up by only two points. So it is a contested race. Easily the most interesting Senate primary, in my opinion, that we've seen this cycle. I mean, the other ones have not even been this close. Uh, so uh, very interesting to look at. And uh, we're going to move on to the House primaries. Uh, first off, we're going to briefly talk, and I know it's hard because Massachusetts 4 is a packed field, but uh, we honestly don't have enough time to spend a ridiculous amount yeah, of time. Adam and I can special on So uh, uh, for Massachusetts 4, I want both of you to give maybe like a one-minute rundown. Uh, this is the fourth district, by the way. So if you guys could give a one-minute rundown, I'll go to both of you. Actually, I think we'll split it up. So I'll have, uh, just to save time, I'll have Adam give us a rundown about the Massachusetts Four race. I'll have Armin talk about the Massachusetts One race. Uh, So Adam, if you want to give a rundown, tell the viewers about the major candidates, uh, how the race is going, major campaign events, and who you expect to win. Uh, And I know you don't have very much time, but just uh, do your best.
4: Sure. This is my home district. I live in Needham. So um, Massachusetts Four is separated into two parts. The northern, very liberal part of Newton and Brookline and its surrounding areas, and the more fiscally liberal part, which is in Fall River, Taunton, and parts of Bristol County. Now, there are eight candidates running in this race, and there is no clear frontrunner. We've had many internal polls showing all eight in a scattered way, but in my opinion, there are three contenders for the frontrunner seat, and that is both Newton City Council men and women, Jake Offencloss and Becky Grossman, and Brook- and former Brookline Select Board member Jesse Murmell. Jake Auchincloss a little more center left than most politicians, but he has created his own lane, and that's very helpful for him. Jesse Mermel has managed to get out of all get the, all the progressives out of her lane, which is very helpful for her. And Becky Grossman is creating a middle lane in, in the middle of that, and not really offending anybody. So again, unless we have some actual polling, I would beg for that. We don't know who's going to win, and I think we're going to have a repeat of what happened in Massachusetts third in twenty eighteen. We have a candidate not winning by around 20 or less than 20 points. It was so, like
0: 200 votes or something. It was yeah. very close, Laurie Tran's victory there.
4: It's going to be It's gonna be closer than that. Mm-hmm. We're going to have yeah. a very, very long primary night. Grab your Oreos. Grab your Pepperidge Farm cookies. Grab your Hootsie cups. Stay yeah. tuned. It's going to be a long night.
0: Yeah. Okay, and we're going to go – Thank you. We're going to go to uh, Armin to talk about the Massachusetts 1 primary where longtime Representative Richard, or he's called Richie Neal, the Ways and Means Chairman in the House, is facing a primary from Progressive Mayor Alex Morse. Uh, so this is the district here. Real quick, I'm going to play a clip from Alex Morse talking about his progressive economic agenda.
2: taking a dime of corporate PAC money in this campaign because when I'm in Washington, when I'm making decisions and taking votes.
0: So essentially, he was arguing there that he's not going to be bought out by PAC money. And in the debate, he was at least uh, somewhat in a vain way criticizing uh, Richie Neal, who's chair of the Ways and Means Committee, which is the tax writing committee in the House uh, for his fiscal problems, essentially. But but then again, there's no evidence of that. And the main issue I think the viewers want to hear here uh, is, A, who you think is going to win and by how much, and B... How the uh, scandal, which I want Armin to kind of give a rundown with, Adam can add in any points if if he wants. But the last minute and a half here, two minutes, just talking about who you think is going to win, whether or not Richie Neal will be another longtime incumbent to go down in a year that's seen horrible results for many house incumbents. Eight have lost up to this point. And um, as well, talking about the scandal, which has now somewhat been refuted and may have not actually been
3: real in terms of the allegations against
0: Moore. So Armin, I'll give you the floor here.
3: Yeah. So uh, ultimately, this is about, you know, whether I mean, because Neil is a very senior member of the Ways and Means Committee. So he brings a lot of pork to Western Massachusetts and uh, whether that outweighs, you know, the Democratic lean of the district. And I think this district is one where Democratic is not equal to liberal because Springfield is 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 the big anchor of the seat. And it's got a high minority population, which tends to be somewhat socially conservative. It has a high population of non-college educated white voters, which are very firmly in Neil's camp. And But it, on the converse, it also has a large amount of area that is kind of like the southern extension of Vermont. The only problem is there's like three people that live there because they're all really, really, really tiny towns. And all of the colleges in West Massachusetts are in Jim McGovern's second district. So... Uh, with respect to the scandal, you know, the framing of it definitely made Neil look a little bit bad, but now I think at this point, there are so many different competing narratives that ultimately it's a wash and I don't think it hurts or helps anybody. Mm-hmm. I think at this point, there's another thing that just came out in the Boston Globe today mm-hmm. about, uh, Alex Morris, while he was the mayor of Holyoke, he did nothing when, uh, Holyoke police officers beat a 12 year old, uh, Latino boy. Yep. And I think something like that, especially in a city like Springfield, where there are a lot of Latino voters, that will definitely hurt him. So I think in the end, Alex Morris does not have a viable path to winning um, without making some significant inroads in Springfield, which is Neil's base and Mm -hmm. demographically not his type of voters. So I think Neil is going to win probably by about 20 points.
0: Okay. And Adam, any quick 30-minute wrap-up thoughts you have to add on to that
4: about the scandal and who you think is going to win? I mean, here's the thing about Alex Morse. I don't think he's a particularly likable candidate. Uh, compare him to Jamal Brown or uh, Corey Bush, huh? Jamal Bowman. Jamal, Jamal Bowman. Bowman. My mistake. Thank you, Armin. Um, Jamal Bowman, uh, Corey Bush. They were incredibly likable. Alex Morse has become kind of uh, almost insufferable to many. Um, and the scandal, as many people in Massachusetts have said, hasn't really hit the ground yet. That you can't really attach it to Neil. So I think it's likely, uh, likely Neil sure. as would say.
0: All right, guys, thank you so much uh, for coming on tonight, talking about the Massachusetts primaries. Really appreciate it guys. We look forward to uh, seeing your coverage. We're going to be covering it, but uh, as well, looking at that, uh, watch our coverage and watch the W or listen to the WCCS coverage. Cause I know we're doing, we're doing visual too. Yeah. So you can check that out as well. And uh Check out. I know Armin. If you want to shout out your model real quick,
3: yeah. So I run a thing called OSC Elections. Uh, you can find it on Twitter at at OSC Elections, uh, or you can uh, Google it, and I'm sure it will come up. But we have a live model of the Massachusetts Senate Primary, and and, uh,
0: and real quick, I'm actually just going to add the link in the comments here for any viewers that want to uh, to view via website. Here's the OSC Elections uh, page in the comments there. Uh, and, uh, we're going to be moving on now to our next segment. So thank you guys so much for coming on. Uh, thank you, Adam. And thank you, Armin. Thank you, Harrison. Thank you. And we're going to be moving on to the third installment of debate time, which is our, uh, weekly report. It concludes the report. I just made a pun there, but, uh, yes, this week the debate is on unions and whether or not they are good for the American economy. Uh, so there's our debate are unions beneficial to the American economy? Uh, we're bringing back the panel from our first debate in two weeks, uh, from two weeks ago, uh, Eric Cunningham and Andrew Figueroa. Andrew is arguing that unions are beneficial to the economy, while Eric Cunningham is arguing that unions essentially are not beneficial to the American economy. So there will be some nuances within the arguments, and I expect both our panelists who are highly intelligent, very good at formulating arguments, will have quite a few points to bring up that uh, extend beyond the general question we've asked them. So welcome again, Eric, and welcome, Andrew. Welcome guys. Happy to be here. Good to have you guys here. So uh, we're going to wrap up just around at the top of the hour, maybe a minute or two past. So that gives us around 10 minutes to debate. Uh, So again, we're just, the the, uh, viewers already know who you guys are because you were on before. So we're going to skip introductions and we're going to go right to opening statements. Uh, So, You guys know the question, are unions beneficial to the American economy? Uh, And we're going to start with Eric with his opening statement.
1: All right. So uh, I would say at the moment, I don't think unions are particularly beneficial to the economy, especially not public sector unions, which I regard as one of the uh, least responsible and most uh, unfortunate uh, major interest groups we have in the United States. If you look at the states with the highest percentage of economic growth, states like Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Texas, Arizona, what do they have in common? Low unionization rates, uh, especially in the public sector. North Carolina actually doesn't even allow public sector unions. That's not to say unions can't be beneficial in any circumstance, but generally speaking, it's hard to have a, a union solving actual problems for a desk job. Um, there's not a whole lot of, frankly, egregious violations of of worker rights in those situations. And in many cases, uh, they provide very little service in exchange for a large portion of paychecks, money that can be used for other economic activities, for saving for retirement, for student loans, anything else. Um, there's just a variety of reasons that unions are in decline in a lot of states. And it's just the the biggest one is that they're just not really that beneficial at this point, even to workers. Mm-hmm.
0: Thank you, Eric. And uh, Andrew, I know you're probably going to want to refute some things that Eric mentioned in his argument, but first, you, if you could just start off with your introductory statement uh, to display your argument to the viewers, and then after that, we're going to get to some raw, hard debate between you two.
2: Absolutely. i got to start out by, first of all, saying that I am the grandson of two union members and the son of a teacher's union member and somebody who worked with teachers unions a lot in high school, so I, I don't share the, the same opinions here. Um, but I think unions, broadly speaking, still provide benefits to the people who are represented in them, even if they're at a desk job. Uh, more and more, we see them in the service industry, people who are working in hotels and such. And they have been proven to raise wages and to combat economic inequality. We have to stop looking at GDP as the be-all, end-all when it comes to whether something is good for the economy. Because whether somebody has a dignified workplace, whether they can access a solid health care plan through their union, whether they can take part in apprenticeship training provided by, for instance, the IBEW, these are all benefits that unions bring to bear. And on the point of public sector unions, I understand the argument that they need to be reined in. But at the same time, we found things like certain unions have actually improved test performance in schools. We saw after Wisconsin's law passed, the test performance declined among students. And they're some of the fiercest advocates for students against budget cuts from the state. So while unions can certainly go too far sometimes, and we might need to explore new models. I think they're a broadly effective tool for American workers. Thank you,
0: Andrew, for your statement. Now we're going to go to some uh, rebuttal. So first off, we're going to allow Andrew, since Eric spoke first, Andrew, is there anything that Eric said specifically in his argument uh, that you would address, that you would refute, uh, or that you would propose a different stance to? And by the way, Eric's gonna get to do this with your argument as well. We're just starting with uh, Andrew. Do you have anything you'd like to mention first off? Uh,
2: Yeah, I'd say the the number one thing I'd like to push back on is the notion that union uh, density is declining because people aren't interested in joining unions. Uh, The main reason here is because unions have faced an all-out assault from the right and from the Democratic Party, too. I'm not going to pretend that they're innocent. Uh, Passage of major trade deals, PNTR. All of these things allowed corporations to hang over people's heads that they can outsource jobs to another country. Additionally, measures like Taft-Hartley, or right to work for less, as I call it, uh, things that allow workers to free ride off of those who are actually paying union dues, the Janus decision being another, lack of sectoral bargaining. There are so many factors involved in this all-out war being waged on unions that it makes it harder for them to operate, saps their resources, and lessens the ability and desirability of people to join them. If we did something like sectoral bargaining, we could actually bolster unions, make them stronger, and combat this notion that they're out of motive.
0: Thank you. And uh, Eric, is there anything you want to address uh, from Andrew's argument there?
2: Mm-hmm. yeah so
1: several things so one thing is I would I would disagree with the idea that being a right-to-work state necessarily means that that you don't have unions uh, the eighth largest state in the country in terms of union membership is Nevada and it has a very large unions uh union membership and the reason why is that the unions provide services that the workers consider valuable even though there is a right to work um, the unions provi- have have chosen to provide services that are actually do that the problem is most unions don't do that um, A grocery store union isn't going to offer anything really valuable to the employee other than taking some of their money and removing their bargaining power. Because ultimately, one thing people don't realize is when you do collective bargaining, that ultimately robs you, the individual, of the ability to bargain on your own work and on your own labor. It assigns it to the role of someone else or a group of people who don't necessarily have your best interest in mind. Ultimately, the best interest that a union has is in maintaining the membership of their older established members who have been there for a long time. The first to go are always the younger workers, uh, whether or not they're more qualified or not. This is something that is avoided by that. Another thing I would argue mm-hmm. is on public sector unions that I don't think actually public uh, teachers' unions have the best interest of students in mind. Uh, a union by n- necessity has the interest of the employees in mind. It doesn't have the interest of the of the customers. And in in the school system, these the students and the parents are the customers. They're not the they're not the employees. Uh, whether or not a teacher's union chooses to support students is is uh, is of the kindness of their heart, but it's ultimately their goal is to result in higher salaries and uh, conditions for their employees, not for the people who are paying for the services.
0: Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, real quick, I just want to go and uh, have you guys give your concluding statements, because again, we are wrapping up. So if there's just anything... Uh, that you guys want to address in terms of each other's arguments real quick before we go to concluding statements, feel free to do that. So uh, I'll let Andrew have one last rebuttal, and then Eric will be able to refute whatever he says, and we'll go to conclusion conclusion statements. So, uh, Andrew, do you want to respond to what Eric said about
2: uh, unions? Absolutely. I'll try to keep it concise. Um, I think unions are still a potent force for collective bargaining, and I think that's something that strengthens the worker's power. Within the workplace, you see informational asymmetry. Uh, Your guy on the line at the steel plant or your grocery store worker necessarily doesn't know the same things and doesn't know the ins and outs of contract law like their employer might or their employer's counsel might. So a union gives you the power of, as it says, collective bargaining, of providing those services by pooling resources. So people find something to gain out of a union. And it's not by joining a union that you're giving up any power, but especially today where we see the gig economy and various multi-employer conglomerates Uh, there's more of a need for workers to band together to be able to get anything done and to countervail the power of the employer. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, we're about to go to our 32nd to one
0: minute conclusion statements to wrap up the show here in about an hour. But Eric, is there anything that you just said that you want to refute or do you just want to wait to your conclusion statement?
1: Um, Particularly, I would say I, I do still question the, the validness of the contract for even a grocery store worker. Um. When I, I, my first job was at food line, a job I would certainly, almost certainly not have if there was a union, I had difficulty getting a job early on out of, um, and I was able to get there and I had good conditions and I had a good relationship with my employer that enabled me to negotiate with him individually and get conditions that worked for me. If there had been a union there, I would not have had that control and certainly would not have had it as the lowest, uh, the lowest member of the rung, so to speak. Mm-hmm.
0: All right, guys, you've had some really good debate here. This was probably our best debate out of the three that we've had so far. And it's always great having you guys on because you you guys don't agree, but you both provide very insightful commentary on both of your opinions. <laughs> so real quick, uh, we're going to be wrapping the show up here. So if you guys just want to give your final concluding statements, uh, we'll go with Andrew and then we'll go with Eric and we'll wrap up. So Andrew, you have 30 seconds to conclude.
2: Great. I think the unions are a force for good in our country and they have been historically, whether it's fighting for higher wages, more benefits, They can once again be a force for betterment, for collective betterment, but it's going to require some changes. Either that's going to be sectoral bargaining or co-determination as we see in Germany. So I agree with Eric that we need to see things change, but I think we disagree on the direction that needs to move in. We need to revitalize the American union to fight inequality, fight poverty, and help American workers. Thank you, Andrew. And Eric, your 30-second
1: conclusion. Mm-hmm. So I would argue that I think the change is ultimately going to come from unions themselves realizing that they need to change. I don't necessarily think it's laws that need to change. Ultimately, unions thrive when they actually have actual inequality and oppression to go at. Um one of the best examples is of the recent protests in Belarus, which are of state uh state-run workers who are doing the same thing in Poland, Solidarity. This was this was actual oppression on a large scale being faced by them. Barring that unions lose some of their their thing and so moving out of that mindset of the, you know, the 1800s mindset of we have actual firm oppression of that scale could help them improve, like you're seeing in Nevada, where they put a big focus specifically on providing services to their members.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you, guys. This was a very fruitful debate, and I appreciated your commentary on both sides. Uh, unions are certainly a very prominent issue in America today, and I think it was very interesting for our viewers to to hear sides that they may not agree with. So that's that's very good. Thank you guys again for, for coming on, Eric and Andrew, and we hope to see you back next week. Thank you. Again, thank you to Eric and Andrew for coming on tonight. Uh, the report is unfortunately over for tonight. We've reached our time limit, but uh, check back on our one-hour show next week, uh, every Monday at 7 p.m., Uh, designed to bring you the news you need from an unbiased perspective and a debate at the end with two people of opposing views so you can get a little bit of a political flair with your nightly news. So thank you again for watching. Make sure to subscribe to Elections Daily. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Make sure to uh, watch our Twitter feed for our coverage of the Oklahoma Five runoff tomorrow. And stay tuned for our future shows, Redistricting Radar on Wednesdays, Elections Weekly, an opinion show on Thursdays, And The World Tonight about Foreign Affairs on Friday, hosted by Pete and uh, Adam Lawless. So thank you, guys, and have a good night.